Well, good evening, and welcome to the uh, Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Harry Edwards. I am the host for this evening, and with me in the studio, uh, I've got physically here in the studio is Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing, Jacob? Hello, hello. Good to be here again. Uh, this is one after the other, right? Just back, back to back. Good right. to be here in the studio, Harry, and just what a blessing. To be here in person, you know, uh, not just doing it online or something. Yeah, so good. I love it. And, and then uh, uh, with us virtually is Logan Zepieri. Logan, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Uh, thanks again for having me. Yeah, so if you guys remember, Logan was with us uh, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, Logan, we're so honored and privileged that you can join us again. Um, we are... We should just get into it, right? We're talking about a uh, a hot topic tonight, and I'm not sure we're going to take calls actually, because uh, we're just covering something really uh, heavy duty, and um, and and maybe the next time we do this, we'll take calls. But we're going to be talking about church and state. Uh, Some of you might even think that there is the separation of church and state. And uh, those two words kind of flow, right? When you you hear the words church and state, I mean, it, you think, ah, you mean separation of church and state. So we want to talk about some of that. We, we also want to talk about um, how Christians relate to um, their understanding of church and state. I mean, there's a, I feel like there's a wide spectrum uh, with regard to that. Many think that they ought to be totally separate, like maybe the Anabaptist, or uh, then there are those who might think uh, that they are more closely together. Um, But I just wanted to to, uh, go back to our brainstorming session, you know, when we were talking about uh, a possible title. And so I threw it out there to my friends and I said, what should we title this? Because I'm here are some of my thoughts, and as usual, they come up with um, great suggestions. But it all started, right, Jacob? You remember when I said, I kind of want to uh, communicate the sense that uh, Americans today, there's a popular saying. Um, they say there are two things, and this is going to be more relevant as the holidays are approaching, <laughs> right? They say there are two things two subjects to avoid talking about at the dinner table. That's religion and politics. And I thought, all right, that that's kind of like the sense I want to communicate because I feel like we've been so successful in the West in actually uh, admonishing that saying that we've become ignorant about political issues We've become ignorant about the law. We've become ignorant about um, how elections work and who to vote for, what principles they stand on, things like that. And uh, we no longer have – and because of that, we no longer have civil conversations around these important subjects, important subjects that affect our daily lives. In fact, even affect the way we worship. So I I feel like Christians – we. Especially now, we've come to a point where it's just caused a lot of confusion, 
a lot of frustration. And I know, uh, Jacob, you have a list there you, you mentioned. So anyways, uh, we were talking about that, and then, uh, Jacob, you came up with the winner, right? You said, uh, back on the table, religion and politics. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, some of the questions we're going to try to answer. Uh, can Christians be political? Is politics necessarily dirty in government? Is government bad? Can we have a society without government? Uh, what's an ideal form of government? Uh, how do we understand these kinds of things, and how do we talk to each other about these kinds of things? So that's, you know, the three of us, we're going to have a conversation about that. So, uh, Logan, what, what, what do you, I'm, I'm going to go to you first, Logan. What, what are some of your initial thoughts on, on this? Uh, I can't see your face, unfortunately, so I don't know what you're thinking. So why don't you just share with us what, what are some of your ideas as we set up um, this topic for tonight? Well, there are a few things that I'm thinking about um, when we have conversations about politics, and that is, as you said, whether or not it's inherently dirty. I think um, the two first things that come to mind is the the Genesis mandate, which is this idea that we should be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. This question of, it seems that part of God's plan from the very beginning was that there would be some ordering and society that would emerge. Now, we could have a question of what that society might look like, but it does seem like there would be some sort of society. And the second part, the second thought would be that sort of famous confrontation that Jesus has, I believe with the Pharisees or it was the scribes, sometimes I get them confused, um, where they're asking if they should pay taxes. And Jesus says, well, you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And naturally that brings about the question, well, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to, uh, to God? And invites us to have that question of, well, well, really political questions. Being, well, because if the, the motivation would be, if you get those things wrong, then you'd be committing idolatry. If you gave to Caesar what was God's. Uh, so okay. I think that the question is inherently dirty. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be inherently at the center of Christian social life. Uh, um, Logan, you touched on the creation mandate, and I, it's so important for us to. Um, uh, recognize that as Christians, it's not in some sense completely separate from the New Testament era in which we live. We also live in light of what God mandated at the creation. And it's so important to understand that uh, the structures of governance, is it's a gift from God to the people he created because he is a God of order and he requires order in our own lives as well, whether it's an individual life or collective existence that we have. So primarily we talk about, when we talk about governance, scripturally we see that there are four kinds. One is self-government, you know, um, keeping God's commandment and walking in his path. Family government, then you have uh, the church government and civil government. So when we talk about governance uh, and particularly the civil government, uh, I want our listeners to actually remember this, that what we are not saying we need to actually, you know, remove misunderstandings and selective hearing when we talk about church and state. We are not saying that there is salvation through politics or any political leader. 
No one is saying that. And that will be a sin if we make that claim. Salvation is only through Christ. But a saved person does something in discipling the nation. And that also, and the other thing is that we should be taking the whole Tota Scriptura. We, we, we can't be selective about you know, verses here and there when it comes to politics or any kind of governance. We have to look at the whole Scripture and understand how God has dealt with humankind in the history what interventions he has made. So I just want to misspell, you know, just remove that misunderstanding if people have before we enter into our discussion here. Right. And I just wanted to add, thanks for setting that up, um, you guys. But yeah, uh, the biblical mandate is that we would have responsible dominion over God's creation. So uh, I think I mentioned this a while ago that even uh, before the fall, and even had Adam and Eve not fallen into sin, I believe that we would still have some form of government, and politics would be part of that. In fact, maybe, maybe we should just define uh, the, uh, certain terms, like like government. What, what would what do we mean when we say government? And then my next question would be, what about politics? Uh, what what Logan? Do you, do you want to take a stab at that? Define government. What do we mean by government? Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I think I would take both government and politics. It would seem that government could be broadly defined as any organized body of people responsible for overseeing or administering or ensuring the protection of some some, uh, I guess, like entity or structure or confine of some form. So it could be a, a church government. It could be a like a national government. It could be a ecological government, you know, economic government. Um, and then as far as politics, I think politics is, broadly speaking, is just the working out of what that organization is supposed to do yeah. and mm-hmm. its limits and boundaries. Yeah, right. I, I, would, I will add just a couple of things. Uh, also, from a Christian perspective, how do we understand politics? Uh, in simple terms, uh, politics is a collective pursuit of ordering our society. Uh, and one of the key questions to ask when it comes to politics is by what standard? Whose standard, standard, standard are we appealing to in, in bringing that order in our society? Um, uh, and we need to understand that from a biblical perspective, as you mentioned, Harry, already like, uh, governance or politics is not invented. It is uh, delegated. It's given to us. There's a way, in, a principal way of conducting ourselves within the society in which we live. And the question is, again, by what standard? Uh, and the good thing that as Christians we need to understand that Romans uh, chapter 13 reminds us of this, that the civil authorities, they're God's deacon. Right, God oversees the authorities and gives them the jurisdiction within which they are called to engage uh, in the world uh, on people that God has given them authority over. So there is a jurisdiction around which that uh, office of governance is fulfilled. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to uh, Logan, the passage that you quoted, because I think for many Christians. Unfortunately, that's about the extent of their knowledge when it comes to church and state. They love quoting that, you know, give unto Caesar or render unto Caesar, which is Caesar's and to God, which belongs to God. So uh, and Jacob and I were having this discussion a while ago. 
so it is important to um to to make that distinction but at the same time is there really uh is is the passage in Matthew telling us that there are certain things that actually belong to Caesar alone and 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 then there are and, and both are exclusive and then maybe things that belong to God that we ought to render so uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that like guys all right yeah i, I would add just one thing uh, which is very much clear in the scripture and I kind of referred to that already, and we talked about this, Harry. Um, one of the things given to the Caesar is the sword of justice. You know, um, that's been given to Caesar. So uh, th- that's why, uh, as I was saying a while ago, that Jesus even allowed himself to be in front of Pilate and be judged by him. God, uh, Jesus did not uh, in any way reject that. He allowed for that to happen so that the, the the jurisdiction that's been given to Caesar or or, the, or Pilate may be fulfilled, yeah. right? So so, th- but there is a limitation to that, right. and Jesus confronts power with truth, right? And so, in this particular context, it is I, I, I guess g- giving of things and 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 who owns things. But I think you just mentioned a proper one proper role of government is uh, to. Uh, Exact justice to mm. administer justice, and we are called to submit, yeah, and restrain evil. Yes, right, right. And so, when it comes to church, instead, we need to under- distinguish between two things, uh, key things. Uh, so we 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 have to talk about sin and crime, right? The state has no role to uh, penalize someone for lust; it's a sin, mm. right? But if that happens within the church, the church uh, el- elders would stand up and confront that. Right? They would not engage the civil government to come and prosecute someone who has lusted. Whereas if that turns into crime, then we have to ask, is this within our jurisdiction or the jurisdiction of the civil government? But Harry, when we talk about Caesar and uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's, we need to understand we are talking about the, the, when Jesus uses that coin and looks at the image and the inscription right, of Caesar on it. Um, we have to remember this as well, that God is also God of Caesar. He is no, so, so ultimately, he is sovereign even over Caesar. Yes. And that what we, we are rendering to Caesar must reflect our ultimate allegiance to God. And right. that he be, he, to him belongs all things good. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the passage again, Matthew 22, right? I I love how Jesus responds to that sort of test, right? Uh, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, and here's the famous phrase, right? Uh, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I love the second part because Jesus says, and to God, the things that are God's. And my personal interpretation of that passage is when Jesus is showing them, it's almost like an object lesson. Here's the coin whose image is on it. Well, we all know, even from Genesis, that we are all created in God's image. So like as you said, and I uh, agree with you on that one, uh, Jacob, that ultimately uh, Caesar actually belongs to God. That's the thing. So, And throughout the scripture, we have time and again examples of how God intervenes, even through pagan kings, to sometimes confront Israel yeah. or sometimes uh, bring them to the right path. All right. 
So I'm going to throw this question out to you. To um, We've not really rehearsed this, but you all got the outline. And, and I remember uh, Oz Guinness would say that one of the hardest things about this is where does the power and authority of uh, the state ends and where the church begins, you know? How do we decide? Um, and, and there's different, and we can bring in the different ways we understand how government is formed, all the maybe uh, the philosophies and nature behind our understanding of government. Uh, we can pull that in in this discussion. But uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, spheres of sovereignty, what happens uh, when they overlap? Uh, who takes precedence, or maybe maybe you guys can help our listeners uh, delineate um, uh, what sphere of sovereignty government operates in, mm-hmm. and and perhaps the sphere of sovereignty that the church operates in, and then like you mentioned, there's there's the personal sovereignty, and there's also the family yeah. sovereignty. What happens when you know how? How can how can we map those different sovereignties? Okay, uh, so uh, uh, I'll just add one thing here, and then maybe uh, Logan can uh, continue that. Uh, w- what I want to say is that one of the areas in which we uh, w- where state and uh, church overlap is on the question of ethics. Right. I like one of the definitions that you gave me a long time ago, Harry. Uh, you define politics as applied ethics, and that makes a lot of sense. It's not the only thing that we do with politics, but one of the main things we do is. So the question is, is there a neutral uh, space when it comes to public square? There is no neutral public square. What we have is a moral public square. And the question is, whose morality? So if the church is concerned about ethics, not just within the church or within the family, right? Because society is nothing but the consti- it's a, a collect- collection of families, right? We can't have one kind of ethics at home and the other kind in, in the society in which we live. So if that's the case, then that's the overlapping space between these two spheres. And when that happens, we have to understand this, that when we say that there's a separation between church and state, what we are not saying is that there's separation between God and church and God and state. God remains the standard by which we apply the ethic that le- leads to human flourishing. Logan, you have anything to add to that? Because I'm going to play devil's yeah, advocate. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate after I, I hear from you. And, and maybe... Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, and, and maybe uh, sound uh, a little bit like maybe Oz Guinness here, and 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 I guess make us appreciate why this is so hard. And basically, I'm just going to clue you guys in. Well, whose ethics? But anyways, t- t- tell us what you were going to say, Logan. Yeah, well, there, there are a few things because um, we've, we've we've dived in pretty deep at this point. Um, <laughs> so you have right. <laughs> Beginning with what, what Jacob has said, um, so you have this question of you know giving to Caesar what Caesar and giving God to what is God, and there are very simple, I think, in very, uh, ways in which you can delineate that. Obviously, the, the classic examples: the image of Caesar versus the image of God. Everything of the in- image of Caesar goes to Caesar. Everything on the image of God goes to God. The natural question, though, is okay. What about everything else? The questions about morality. 
uh, uh, Jacob pointed out very clearly that the public good seems to be in the vested interest of both the state and the church. Now, this is where this would be an overlapping um, difficulty that many people have thought about, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll jump in on this. But there are other things that don't seem necessary to be overlapping that have been delegated to the state. So, for example, it would seem like questions about how the sacraments should be given to the congregation is just not a state problem that they should be invested into, unless it involves, like, creating sacraments that require um, the violation of maybe other people's inherent rights to life, maybe. So, like, human sacrifice, if it became a sacrament, would be something the state would come and say, that's not what we're going to do. But you have other situations where, like, traffic laws, seems like that is not in the vested interest of the Church to be creating traffic laws on what side of the street you should drive on, how fast you should be traveling. Right now, maybe if the state decides to violate that with some sort of ethics, like, you can drive as fast as you want and hit anyone you want on the street. The, the Church might be like, no, there's a right to life, and you should not <laughs> be, be killing other people. Yeah. So you do have issues of that seem to be very exclusive. The sacraments go to the Church, the traffic laws go to the state. But then the question of promoting public good public behavior seems to be in the vested interest of both the state and the church. And this is where they conflict heavily, and this is where a lot of the debate has taken place. Where has the state crossed the line? Where has maybe religion crossed the line? And historically, what sort of the Western tradition has sort of landed on is that when it comes to questions of the conscience, that's not bound by by the determinants of the state. Hmm. Now, some of the religious leaders would even say that's not even the determinant of the Church, that's determined, determined by God. Hmm. And so this is where now you've had, now you, at this point, we've fleshed out this sort of Caesar and, and God question to questions about the human conscience, the social ethics, what are you allowed to do, what aren't you allowed to do, and who gets to arbitrate, given that it seems like, you know, God's not the one that's present, that's arbitrating, you have the Church and the state, and the individual conscience, and how do you navigate those three tensions? Mm-hmm. Right. And just one more thing in regards to that is that as Christians, we should be asking when we talk about governance in any sphere, is that do we have the right to ecclesiasticize, I'm borrowing that term from Joseph Boot, the scope of Scripture? Does it only limit within the church? Right or does it, does its scope actually extends beyond the wall of church, beyond the wall of family, beyond the wall of self? Right. These three, we we don't actually say uh, or, or or we object to the fact that scriptures apply to self, to to family, to the church. Whereas when it comes to the structure and the sphere of governance, civil governance, for some reason as Christians we tend to actually hesitate to say that scriptures actually apply even outside the church. So what we have done is actually we have bought into this uh, in agreement with the secularist. We have privatized our religion, and we have agreed with them that Scripture has nothing to tell the world. What's hard is, again, I'm playing devil's advocate tonight. Um, It's seen, all right, I have to say, with with the uh, political thinkers of the 18th century, 19th century, I feel like they had it much easier. I mean, that's just my opinion. Um, 
and maybe I'm right or maybe I'm wrong on that. But today we are just uh, living in a pluralistic society where travel uh, is common. It seems like it's it's becoming more difficult, more challenging to be tolerant because uh, you, you mentioned uh, Christians shy away from quoting scripture, from um, uh, insisting that they have the truth because they're Christians. But then what about our Muslim neighbors? You know, what about uh, our um, neighbors who uh, are not uh, Christians and yet they're living uh, we're living together. They're here in the United States, in the West. H- how do we now get along? Which I know uh, one of our uh, friends, Oz Guinness, it, it t- t- reminds us that that's one of the most difficult things. But I know we're coming up on a station break, and we don't have time right now to uh, talk about that. We will, though. We'll try to answer some of those challenges after the break. But I want to remind our listeners that we are a 501c3 organization, a nonprofit organization. And if you like what you're hearing and uh, you benefit a lot from our uh, radio programs, we would invite you to donate to our organization because it's going to help us in tremendous ways to keep us on the air. Uh, in fact, uh, we are all volunteers. Uh, we have been for a couple decades now. And uh, uh, so... Basically, your donation, 100% of, that, of, of your donation will go towards um, just covering our, our costs. And there are costs associated with this. And so uh, if you um, are so kind and if you would remember, uh, not only keep us in prayer, but uh, click that donate button at www.apologetics.com and any amount will help. So... I think I hear the music, which means we are going on a station break, and uh, we'll catch you on the other side. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the Internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. This is John MacArthur with more Portraits of Grace. For centuries, Israel has eagerly awaited the promised Messiah. Yet in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah already came. But since he didn't fit Israel's blueprint of a reigning political Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression, the nation rejected him, tossing him aside like a worthless rock. Christ, this rejected cornerstone, however, is precious to believers but remains a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to unbelievers. People trip over a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense is large enough to crush a person. The point is clear. Rejecting Christ brings spiritual devastation of enormous proportions. 
Let such a frightening reality motivate you to take every opportunity to evangelize the lost. This is John MacArthur praying you're continuing to be portraits of grace. Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. Have you allowed the voices of culture to silence the name of Jesus from your lips? In Acts 4, we hear a bold statement by Peter and John. They, too, were being pressured to keep silent about their faith. In verses 19 and 20, we read, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The disciples had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands the resurrected Lord. As a result, his glory was undeniable and their obedience to him was irrepressible. Ladies, we can't let the world silence us. May God give us holy boldness to open our mouths and proclaim the name of Jesus. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Well, welcome back to the uh, second half of the uh, Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm in studio with my friend uh, Jacob Daniel, Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing? Very good. Thank Very you. good. Who is the founder president of Heritage Council? Mm-hmm. You want to tell us more about that? Yeah, um, it's it's an honor to be serving uh, with uh, Heritage Council, and the vision and mission is basically to advance the truth of Christian faith and to promote its excellence in public life. So keeping a good balance between head and heart and also our hands to work uh, for the glory of God. Um, we are heading towards a very busy season you know, um, with a lot of training and teaching and writing. And so I will really appreciate the prayers of our listeners. Mm-hmm. And it's an honor to actually uh, be here with Apologetics.com and be able to do radio like this. And also I also associate with Equal Justice Forum, and Logan and I, we are part of that as well. So we do a lot of podcasts on cultural and relevant issues uh, facing the church yeah. in particular. And, and Logan, I know you're involved with uh, Equal Justice, and uh, you're a friend to the ministry. Uh, appreciate you, brother. What have you been up to uh, ministry-wise? Yeah, thanks again, uh, Harry, for having us, having us on. I've appreciated the discussions. Uh, ministry-wise, I spend uh, my time pre- divided, actually, between Equal Justice stuff as um, Jacob had mentioned podcasts, um, a lot of scholarly reading on different social um, articles and stuff like that. And then the other portion, I actually spent a lot of time in high school ministry, mm-hmm. uh, working with high school students, um, teaching, teaching, hanging out, trying to train up in different um, things like how to read your Bible or how to give sermons and stuff like that. That's great. One of these days, Logan, we're going to have you here physically in the studio, right? I mean, yeah, that'll be a, <laughs> yes, a it will, goal. it will happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, will, it will happen. <laughs> I, I love how you guys are really uh, sh- shedding light into a lot of important topics that um, we Christians are just not very aware of nowadays, but very important, such as this topic that we're talking about uh, this evening. But uh, Jacob, you and I were talking about some of the um, uh, maybe results 
uh, bad results of not having that discipline or that habit of not talking about religion and politics and how they mix at the dinner table. And so uh, it's it's just caused so many bad things in culture today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said you actually wrote a list. I want to hear some of, some of that. Um, <laughs> so there are a lot of reasons for hesitation to talk about. And this is uh, coming from a different um, cultural setting. I think it is predominantly a Western phenomenon to not talk about politics and religion. Whereas elsewhere you travel, uh, you travel to India, you travel to any places in Africa, or even in the in the Arab world, religion is so much vital to public life. So is politics, and people are passionate a bit about engaging. So what is it that the church here, or Christians in particular, have bought into this idea that why why did we give into this that that we can't talk about religion and politics? Um, I think we already talked about quite a few things uh, because one of the key reasons I believe is because of not rightfully understanding the very uh, biblical definition of governance and politics. We have to come to the right definition of it. That's where we need to begin uh, so that we can honor God in, in doing what he's calling us to. What does it mean to disciple the nations? You know, Does it involve uh, you know, uh, governance? Does it involve our engagement in the civil public square? Um, Ignorance about the good Christianity has offered to not just the Western world, but the world around, you know, people around the world. If we can truly understand, you know, what the, the, the structure of governance that Christianity has offered and what people have come up with, you know, through Christian principles and values and the impact that it has happened in, 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 in the liberation of nations, you know, if we can study that. That will give us more confidence in terms of knowing, yes, what we hold uh, as true is also relevant to our life. Uh, the other reason I think why we have hesitation, and I'm not, I'm not speaking about everyone here, but uh, one of the questions to be asking is that do we hate sin enough, right? I believe if we don't have godly governance, we have disorder in the society, and that would create more sin and do we hate sin enough that we are willing to actually step in and engage from a biblical perspective? So if we are not hating sin enough, then you know we may not want to engage in something that we don't see as good. What's that famous uh, saying that for evil to triumph, all good that people have to you know yeah, do nothing, do nothing. Yeah, yeah. That's a, we, exactly. As Christians, we can't keep our faith privatized and our allegiances uh, fragmented. We can't do that. We, you know, I always say, if you engaged uh, in voting ever, you are political. If you're sending your kids to school, you are political. If you're paying tax, you are political. Every aspect of our life, in one way or the other, is connected with the collective existence that we have. And when that happens, whether we like it or not, we engage in politics. And I think one of the things I've been talking to you about, Harry, is that uh, we need to be asking, are we civil enough? We mostly question the other, people who don't agree with us and shout at us or have a loud voice or bring in their argument without much logic. We should be asking, do we really believe in civility? If we really really do believe in that, we would not be fearful and hesitate to actually bring in the truth that we hold so dear. Yeah, Uh, we're lacking in practice. Exactly. And also the next thing I would say is that we, we have to shun being merely presentist. We have to care for the generations ahead of us and for 
we are sowing the seed that they have to benefit from. And that's the mentality we need to be having. And in doing all this, I mean, you talk about politics or religion, we need to be prepared to pay the price. Count the cost and pay, pay the price. We have to do that. That's, that's a given. So if you're thinking that we will be uh, just maintaining peace in some way by not discussing, I think we'll lose more by doing so. So I, I want to push back to both of you. And by the way, I, I do agree with that. But what about our critics when they say, well, you guys are talking uh, about government from a Christian worldview, but we live in a pluralistic society where uh, every uh, religion, every belief system must have a hearing because, we, um, be- because that's just uh, the freedom that we have. Uh, which is part of our, which is part of what uh, grounds our ideas of liberty and freedom, and even uh, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. So, how do we decide? So, so we were talking about the, the possible, uh, uh, what do you call it, the possible overlaps uh, between spheres of sovereignty. Now we're talking about overlaps and and possible um, disagreements among worldviews how do we navigate that what provide for us a map some kind of a vision because that's that's a difficult thing and unfortunately right sometimes uh our our knee-jerk reaction or solutions is just to avoid it but that's not good either so what yeah i'm I'm curious Uh, i would say we we begin with this premise that which is given in matthew chapter five you are the light of the world and salt of the earth. So it's not saying you're the light of the church or light of individual, but you're the light of the world. So as Christians, we, are, we have this existence and principles and values that we hold on to. And that's the good news. What we are saying is that um, the Christian, if, if one seeks after God and his law, it's not just good for those who claim to be Christians. It's good for the society at large. And I would actually challenge anyone Asking that question is to investigate uh, the different events of history, investigate the different constitutions around the world. And I've studied that for my Ph.D. work and, uh, or di- different ways of governance. And I'll, I would challenge you on this, that you have to come up with some of the, those values that has led to human flourishing or flourishing of nations and people group. And you would come up with at the end of values that the Western world has uh, adopted within their own constitution that has liberated their own people. Uh, uh, you know, so so I would, yeah, from a Christian perspective, even even though we are proposing that because we believe that to be true and good for all, right? Uh, so not just limited to a certain group of people. Yeah. In fact, uh, just as an aside, when you were mentioning a while ago that uh, ultimately any form of government is a theocracy. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when you when you think about it, that that is true, uh, but this actually uh, could work in our advantage too, as uh, evangelicals, as people of God, as uh, one who seeks to be more like Christ and um, wants His gospel to uh, be preached. In some of those nations, in fact, uh, probably in almost any nation that is not the West, uh, because religion and politics are just common sources of you know common topics to talk about at the dinner table it's 
you know, everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Yeah. And uh, no one uh, in, in these countries will automatically be offended if you raise uh, such questions about Jesus, Christianity, and yeah. even their faith. They, they love to talk about it. In, in fact, I, I know this to be true. I remember going to a, a short-term missions, and we were in this um, Muslim nation, and uh, we weren't allowed to proselytize, but but just talking about Jesus was totally fine because mm-hmm. they claim Jesus for themselves too. I always uh, tell people this, that the very first claim that the early church made for which they were killed was a political statement. Do you know what that was? Yeah. Jesus is Lord. Lord. Caesar yeah. is not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Jesus is Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a religious statement. At the same time, when they're saying Jesus is Lord, they're making a political statement that Caesar is not. Right. So. That was a big thing. It's not so much that um, they were prohibited from worshiping God. What uh, the Romans did not appreciate was that he, Jesus alone Is was the, God. Yeah, that he alone was sovereign, including sovereign over the Caesars. Yeah. Um, hey, Logan, you're still with us. Any any thoughts you want to add to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a few Uh just going back to, I think, something that I originally said, but it is directly connected to what Jacob just said about sort of the social morality. Um, when when I, I mentioned that one of the kind of sort of the big questions that emerged in the kind of the conversation about giving to what is Caesar Caesar's and giving to God what is God's is this question of conscience. And very often we've assumed that questions of, uh, of the conscience are just private matters. And I think it's unfortunate because if your conscience is a private matter, I think there's good reason to think that there's not much of a conscience left. If there are things that are that you think conscientiously are bad or are good, but it doesn't actually change your behavior, the question would be, how much of a conscience do you have left? And I think we do have a social problem regarding this particular thing, the acting out our conscience. And... Glenn Lowry actually bring, brought this up during last year's summer riots. He was, it was a very emotional point for him. He had said there's something going on where broad society is promoting a kind of behavior in the black community during the protests that they would not promote their own children to do around the dinner table. And he said that is just such a betrayal of morality. And he was like, you could tell in this conversation, he's almost on the verge of tears. And I think this is where we have the conversation. There's this implied assumption that conscience is private and that religion, religious belief, has no behavioral effect. Like if you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're a Buddhist, there's just no fundamental difference on how you'll act, which seems to be contrary to everything that we know about any of those religions. But there is something that does come up. And this is a pushback against what you're saying, Harry. So, so in Jacob's point, yes, there's a problem with social morality and the way that our conscience is functioning. It's, it's been deteriorating for a while. But to push back against Harry a little bit, there is something that came out of the Christian West, which was coarse belief isn't true belief. You can't just make people Christian. And this is the idea why they've adopted that governments shouldn't establish Christianity as the state religion. This is what we're going to do, because 
within the Christian doctrine. People just being told what to do, it doesn't make you Christian. Read Paul, you know, uh, denouncing and Christ denouncing works of the law. The, do, practicing the works is, in a way, great. There's nothing morally, I guess, wrong. But it's not going to give you salvation. Like, you're missing the entire gospel if you think questions of Jewish law and questions of circumcision is, is the ticket into heaven. It has to be an actual spiritual change. And so to push back is like, yes, there, what do we think about the, the Muslim neighbor or the Buddhist neighbor or the Hindu neighbor? Well, there's two things I would say. One is that I can't force you to be a Christian. I can't force you to accept the gospel. But the second thing is, do you think I should not promote what I believe is to be good and beneficial for you? Right? Because that would be the, the impl- implication is, I know you think that this is the way people flourish, but I'm, I, I would please ask you to keep that private and actually promote something you think is bad. That's just requiring a, a general society who's not honest. And you're not going to have a strong social fabric in anything if you're requiring most or if not all of society to preach what they don't believe. Hmm. Yeah. And also, um, one of the postures that as Christians we should be taking when it comes to politics, I think our primary posture is one of reformation, not revolution, right? Uh, I'm not saying that there had not been revolutions in the past, but at the same time, uh, uh, Christianity deals with the reformation of hearts. That's where we begin, right? It's not merely top-down, but it's also bottom-up in many ways. Largely, it's bottom-up. There's a reformation in the hearts of people that reflects in terms of how we conduct our public behavior uh, and collective behavior. Um, so, uh, and when it comes to, as Christians, what we are saying is this, that uh, uh, in, the church's engagement in the governance is on the standard of the ethics that applies to church as well, right? They are, they are, they are putting themselves uh, in judgment of the same laws that they want to bring about. Uh, in uh, in in terms of like the governance of a nation, uh, so they are tested on both fronts. Yeah. They can't be hypocrisy, and when that hypocrisy happens, and in the past it has happened, that can do more damage. So so what we are saying is that we are applying the very standard that we wish to apply um, when it comes to governments governance that which we are applying on ourselves, uh, and so it's we are tested at both fronts. You know, uh, I just had a question come up. Just trying, just sensing the uh, the tone in which we're presenting this uh, show this evening. But do you guys get the sense that uh, we are uh, due for some kind of reformation, as you say, Jacob? Um, are we sort of like on the defense? Uh, do we need to come up with fresh new ideas in terms of reforming? Uh, particularly the Christian's view of church and state. What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Uh, do we need a major repair? Uh, obviously, it's never hopeless, but do you think we're we're in that period where we need to work harder? I believe in this. I believe in Christ and his word. And that's the the primary thing as a Christian. Um, Jesus has called us to disciple the nations, Right, it means something, and do we really believe in the fact that He is King over all nations? All nations submit to Him, 
or must submit to him. Right? There is only one king. I always ask uh, people, you know, just uh, how many kings are there? Right? As a Christian, how many kings are there? There is just one and he's sovereign. He's in control. So as Christians, we can't lose hope. We, there is no time limit or deadline for us being salt of the earth and light of the world. It, it's a continuous process. And that's one thing. There's one thing we are missing in our culture is that even with uh, the different kind of political systems that or um, governmental systems that we've had is that we have to understand that it's a process that we have entered into. And we have to give it the, uh, the due course for it to come to a fulfillment. We're not saying that the, the, the earthly uh, uh, powers and authorities will turn into the kingdom of God. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that um, it must reflect as Christians. You know, we have a duty to, to teach and disciple uh, even the very sphere of governance that we participate in. By the way, just for your information, if you're interested in the in this discussion and would like a good uh, primer on state and government and religion and politics, I would recommend uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine's book, Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. So a lot of our um, points this evening is taken from that. Um and uh, I think he does an excellent job. He's an expert in this area. So I would f- uh, wholly endorse that. Now, the uh, we, we were talking about... Um, uh, the, the, you're talking about one king, one kingdom, uh, Jacob. Uh, maybe you want to explain a little bit or highlight where perhaps... Uh, in my understanding, where we might have gotten the whole separation of church and state, whether that be extreme or uh, not extreme. But Luther, right, came up with his uh, doctrine of government um, where he um, proposes the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom, mm-hmm. where he would um, highlight the fact that the right-hand kingdom is kind of God's kingdom, Kind of like the city of God uh, of August, Augustine, where he borrows a lot of his ideas from, and then the left hand kingdom would be the civil government. Um, so, so he he differentiates between the invisible church, uh, which is the city of God, and then there is a visible church and visible state that will be you know just uh, the other the, the other right. hand. Right, and it's important to know that uh, at least uh, well. All of this to say, it, it really was difficult for a lot of the uh, political thinkers, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, from from Plato all the way to the modern era. But in in the two kingdoms idea, the left hand kingdom and the right hand kingdom, Luther actually uh, was trying to still keep them together in 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 the fact that he said that the the visible church actually cooperated with the civil government. Uh, And yet we know that that has failed in some ways because he's trying to get them together. And in fact, during, during their time before the reformation, uh, we, we know of the tumultuous history between church and state. So so it's just fascinating how uh, Luther tried to come up with a solution. We know that didn't, succeed very well um 
And if you look at the Escondido School, which is not far from here, you know, Westminster Seminary, um, like uh, scholars like David Van Drunum, and they also differentiate between uh, the, uh, the common kingdom and the redemptive kingdom. Common kingdom kind of applies to all people regardless of whether you believe in God or not. And then there's this redemptive kingdom that Christians are part of. And I think, uh, I personally believe that it does a lot of damage. Uh, it kind of like makes a schizophrenic schizophrenic, yeah, treatment of church and state. Church right. and state, yes. Because, yeah, I, I uh, wholly uh, agree with you on that one. There is really only one kingdom. Yes, and yeah. there is only one king. And there's only one king, ultimately. Yeah, right. uh, and uh, Christ has been given, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Yeah. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Yeah. And First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 onwards, if we read the order of uh, his, his uh, coming, we see that a picture of him taking authority over all right kingdoms, over all people. And that's, that's the picture we hold on to. And so in that regard, um, this bifurcation of two kingdoms and radical separation between two, uh, in my opinion, doesn't justify the mandate given in the scriptures. All right. I know we're coming uh, to the end of our show real quick, but it, it would not be right if we didn't mention the fact that, um, again, and, and this is something that Os Guinness has actually promoted in his uh, latest writings, in that uh, the U.S. government, what makes it unique right now, the way it's uh, uh, founded and and everything grounded is the idea of covenant. Uh, did you want to speak a little bit on that and, and what covenant uh, means in terms of how the U.S. Constitution or, or Logan, maybe you want to speak to that, the, the whole idea of covenant and how uh, the U.S. Constitution is based on that? Yeah. Uh, so this is... <laughs> so... so um, so what naturally emerged in the conversation of, you know, what things do you give to God and what things do you give to Caesar was a question of, well, what, like, what, how do I know who to give to, which Caesar to give to, and, and how do I know it's, you know, that Caesar, or how do I know what to give to God and how do I know it's, you know, that God? And what both, what, what the Reformers did, I think, quite correctly, and I think some, some Jewish thinkers as well, is they noticed that when God sort of became king of Israel in a way, not just in this sort of ontological way that you know, who God is in nature, but that there was this like, almost this covenant between God and Israel that God said, I will be your God and my people, and Israel said back, you will be our God and we will be your people. And in that way there was a covenant that was established. And many have looked back and said, if God had to make a who made a covenant, maybe not had to make, but made a covenant with Israel to be king, then maybe all governments must make a covenant with its people to have a form of legitimacy for its rule. Now, very often they don't specify what form of government, right, but that the, the covenant must be made. And so the U.S. Constitution was a way in which the government made a covenant to the people and said, this is what I'll uphold and this is what we have in the Constitution. This is the sort of document by which the government said, I will be your government and you will be my people, and the people said, you will be our government and we will be your people. And, and this uh, is where, like, the deck... Go ahead. Yeah, and there's one, something yeah. very beautiful there which, which 
which is borrowed, I think, from Reformation, is the idea of we the people. Basically, it's what it what it is is basically the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes not just with rights but also responsibilities. And as Christians, we, if we are engaging or if we are benefiting from the rights of being a citizen of a nation, we should also be asking what responsibilities are we fulfilling yeah. that glorifies God. I love it. Yes, and so the terms of the conditions of the covenant, if you want to use that language, for the Constitution has been looked at in regards to the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers as being sort of expounding on that. And when you see in the Declaration of Independence, there's actually a call for the people. Now, they're appealing to national law. We don't have time to get into that necessarily, but it does make its way into the Declaration of Independence. It's actually the citizen's responsibility to hold the government accountable to its promises. And so whether or not, right, while, while, you know, as a Christian, we do have that particularized obligation within the covenant of our government to hold our government responsible or accountable. All right. Thanks for that, Logan. And uh, I wish we had more time, but uh, for sure we are going to have a a part two of this, and uh, we will continue the discussion some other time. Uh, but you've been listening to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinks to believe. Thanks to Logan and Jacob um, for their contributions uh, this evening. And uh, we hope that you have learned something valuable. And so until next time, good good evening, and we'll talk to you next week. Apologex.com was live and sponsored by Apologex.com on 99.5 KKLA.